0: Um, I suspect that your uh, experience of, of this has been similar to mine. Um, uh, I, I've had friends, acquaintances over the years who have said things like, um, you know what, I like Jesus, but I, I don't like the church. Um, or, or a variation on it, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Old Testament. Um, in fact, he, in our first service, Dave Stoker shared his testimony and he said for 25 years, that was my story. I, I like Jesus, didn't like the church. And he shared how God has been working change in his heart. Now, there's a part of that that kind of confuses me, and I know I'm easily confused. Um, But, but it's this: some of the things that Jesus says are really difficult to understand. Like, you know, in fact, if you if you say, you know, I like Jesus. Uh, kind of out of the gate, never had any questions or difficulties with the things that he said, um, it may be that you're not actually reading him and thinking about what he's saying because sometimes he's really hard to understand. Um, And we're in a passage of scripture like that. In fact, some scholars have suggested that that the Sermon on the Mount may well be uh, one of the most kind of intensive and difficult uh, teachings of Jesus to get right, to figure out Um, We we started into this series last week, these upside-down sayings of Jesus. And there's a sense in which Jesus has taken the stage. Matthew kind of scoots through this. If you you read Luke and John, he gives us a little more detail. Uh, Matthew kind of scoots through um, this sort of six-month to one-year period where Jesus was ministering uh, around Israel, small towns, um, teaching. People were enamored with his teaching and healing. And he was, he was working healing. And, and so by the time we get to Matthew chapter 5, um, extraordinary crowds have begun to gather. And, and in fact, that's what it tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, is, is that it, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So this is the context for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus kind of then goes on to describe seven blessings. Um, we, we talked last week about how um, Matthew's paralleling something here. There was another prophet who went up a mountain in, in order to bring back the word of God. Uh, Moses uh, went up and brought back the Ten Commandments. Jesus brings back these seven blessings. There's actually seven commands that attach to it. Uh, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, then kind of unpacks those Ten Commandments, For the children of Israel, saying, look, if you're going to live in the land successfully, here's how you're going to have to do it. Um, Jesus unpacks the seven blessings and the seven commands that he brings in the Sermon on the Mount. So there are these kind of parallels going on. Uh, Moses, how to live successfully as the people of God in the land God was giving them. Jesus, how to live successfully as the new people of God as as in the kingdom of God, as followers of Jesus. So there's, there's this really fascinating kind of account going on. But this is difficult stuff to, to, to understand. Um, I, I gave the 9 o'clock congregation the chance that if I didn't explain it well enough come back at 11 and we'll do it again you don't have that luxury I'm sorry the best you'll be able to do is to say well maybe I can listen to it on tape and figure out what he's trying to say but I'm going to do my best my level best to try to get this in a helpful way for you and to maybe summarize it I would say this Jesus followers Jesus followers his disciples those who had left the fishing boats behind are um, who gathered and Jesus was teaching them Jesus followers live in his blessing and live out of his blessing. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Live in his blessing. Live out of his blessing. And it will change you. It will change you. Um, and we're going to look at part of the sermon this week. And we're going to continue looking at it uh, through the next few weeks. Um, we're going to kind of look at four pieces that he addresses uh, here. And, and the ways it's going to change you. It's going to change the way you think about scripture. The way you think. You're going to come to love Scripture. Um, Jesus' followers are, are going to love their role as being peacemakers. Uh, Jesus' followers are going to love being those who have pure hearts. And, and we're gonna love, we're gonna love fidelity and faithfulness. Uh, th- there's character, character traits that Jesus is calling his followers to. So, so this teaching comes kind of at the height of Jesus' popularity. Um, uh, once people start figuring out what he's really saying, uh, he became far less popular. Uh, popularity was not his goal. That was not what Jesus was trying to do. His goal was to bring truth. His goal was to bring insight that, that we would follow, follow God effectively and, and represent him rightly. Uh, that was his goal. Um, but this is the height of his popularity. Some of the people had gathered from the community, the towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee uh, to where this sermon was being delivered on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, some people had, get, had traveled a couple of days to actually get there. Uh, and, and they'd come, they'd heard, they'd maybe seen, they'd maybe been touched by God, the healing ministry of Jesus. There was something compelling about Jesus. I, I, I was in a conversation with a, a friend, atheist friend, um, uh, just about a week ago, a week and a half ago. And we have some sort of faith conversations from time to time. And, and, and he said, you know, I, I wish I could believe. This was an interesting confession. He said, I wish I could believe, especially at this stage in my life. He's a senior man. Uh, But I I just don't. I I don't. Um, In other conversations, he said things like, um, there's something winsome and compelling about Jesus that that I can't disregard. Um, It hasn't led him to faith yet. You can pray for my friend. Pray for me as I try to share Jesus with my friend. Um, But it's not uncommon for us to say, well, there. Despite the objections, despite the fact that he says some strange, difficult things to understand, there's something winsome about the person of Jesus. There's something that keeps calling me back. Jesus said his followers would live out of his blessings. Uh, He then then said this, characterized by by, um, being uh, salt seasoning, Bringing out the God flavors of the world. That's the language of Eugene Peterson um, uh, from the message. Uh, Eugene Peterson's with the Lord today, just this past week. Um, he, he, he passed away. Um, man, the guy brought some just beautiful ways of helping us see what Jesus was saying here. Uh, he, he, he said, Jesus, would, uh, Jesus said that his followers would um, bring, would be like light bringing out the God colors in the world, the message translation of of that passage, Matthew chapter 3. And then he says this, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, So Jesus says, do not think, do not be mistaken, don't get this wrong. What he's saying is, some of what I have already said, could easily be misunderstood as me disregarding the Old Testament law. And it's about to get worse, because you could easily misunderstand what I'm going to say next as even more of that, but don't misunderstand me, because that's not what I'm saying. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And some of your translations will kind of amplify the Greek word there, to fill up to fill up the law and the prophets. And what Jesus was saying was the old Test- the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the, the Bible Jesus was reading, the Hebrew Scriptures, pointed to him. They anticipated his coming. Um, even things like the, the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. Um, the, the idea that because of sin and brokenness, It was necessary for a sacrifice to be made. And a lamb, a dove, pointed to John the Baptist. John chapter 1 says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Old Testament pointed to Jesus. He filled it up. He fulfilled the expectations of the law and the prophets. And so in filling it up, in in fulfilling it, in, in completing it, sacrifices aren't necessary. But he's going to go on and he's going to say, not a jot or a tittle is going to pass away through all, all of eternity because it continues to have authority. It continues to speak effectively. Even things like the sacrificial system point to the brokenness of humanity and the need for right relationship with God, that our sin would be atoned for, covered over, that we would be made right with God, we'd be declared righteous, Made possible by Jesus. And so he's saying, look, all of this pointed to me. It forecast my coming. Verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And we can get that, right? We can make sense of that. It continues to have value. In fact, Jesus would say it has more value because now it can be seen through the one who fulfills it, through the one who brings instruction concerning its right understanding. Verse 19, he says, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so, so, so Jesus' followers live out of his blessing on us, and when we do, it changes us. He begins to, to cultivate change in us. And one of those changes is uh, we're going we're to have a love relationship with Scripture. It continues to speak, Genesis through Revelation, of the one who came in fulfillment of it. And it becomes the means by which we get to know him better. It becomes the means by which we can engage in God's world through his revelation of himself to us. The Apostle Paul tells us that it's God-breathed. It's there as his breath for our benefit. We get to verse 20, and Jesus continues on. He says, for I tell you, That unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is is why I say this is kind of hard stuff to understand. Um, What does that have to do with what just preceded? Like, if you were just kind of reading it through, you you would be forgiven if you said, I don't get the connection here. That statement unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, was unthinkable, unthinkable to the majority of Jesus' hearers. Like, nobody did Bible better than those guys. Like, these are the super, supermen of Bible study, of of Bible knowledge. The Pharisees were, were these lay scholars. In other words, they had another job, another career. They were fishermen or farmers or or merchants. Um, But all their spare time was spent memorizing scripture, understanding scripture, writing some rules about scripture as to how to better observe it. The scribes were the professionals. They were the ones that you could hire if you wanted a copy of of the Hebrew scriptures yourself. Maybe you were wealthy and could afford that. Or you put your money together so that your local synagogue could have copies of the scripture. You'd hire the scribes. They would write it out for you. They knew it inside and out and backwards. Nobody did Bible better than these guys. In fact, they were the local authorities on how to how to live right with God. For all intents and purposes, these were the super saints. Like these guys, got it right. And Jesus is saying your righteousness has to surpass that of the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. How is that even possible? And Jesus fills that in. We're understanding his hard teaching here, right? Verse twenty one. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone remember where you shall not murder comes from? Ten Commandments. Right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, okay? You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, first we need to catch here. Jesus is using a teaching formula that that is going to be helpful to us. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. Now, what is it that he's correcting? He just finished saying the Old Testament continues to be authoritative, that, it continue, that he's come to fulfill it, not a jot or a tittle is going to pass away until everything is completed. And, and so what he's, though he's quoting the Old Testament, what he's correcting is the interpretation of the Old Testament. He's, he's correcting the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said you're going to have to do better than they've done. And here's why, and we'll get to this in a minute, here's why, because... They have got stuck on the letter of the law, and they've missed the heart of the law. They've, they've, they've got stuck on the, the, the letter of the prophets, but have, got, have missed the heart of it. They've got this, they become super religious, but it's a faith that's only skin deep. And that's a problem for Jesus. And he calls it out, and we're going to see it throughout this Gospel of Matthew, Verse 21, you've heard that it was said, here's that formula, to people long ago you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, Aramaic for curses on you, something like that, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So so what so, so Jesus is not correcting scripture he's correcting the interpretation of scripture because we human beings are funny creatures are we not So so the the, the Pharisees and scribes had this this way of adding rules in, in order to kind of safeguard people and safeguard the nation so if this is the moral uh, cliff here, uh, their rules would make sure that you stayed at least 10, 20 feet back from the edge. And so they had rules about you know what you could and couldn't do on a Sabbath. Um, they had rules about uh, Washing your hands, um, purification stuff uh, they had rules about tithing you know the, not only should you bring ten percent of um, the crops that you brought in from your farm or the herd that has multiplied um, or the, the, the you know the, the profit on your merchandise as a merchant, uh, but you should bring you should bring ten percent of everything in your pantry, uh, all your spices, all your herbs ten um, percent and so they had all these kinds of rules. But we're funny people, are we not? They had all these rules on the one hand, and then they, on the other hand, they were kind of loophole lookers. Like they they would try to find the way around uh, some of the rules. What what's how do we to understand this sin? You know, um, well, here are some loopholes. Here are some ways we could get around it, where it doesn't really mean what it says it means. And in all of this, Jesus' great concern was: you've missed the heart of, of what I am trying to do here in showing the brokenness that is present in our world, the need to be restored in relationship to the Father, and then to walk differently. John the Baptist called the the first people of God to walk differently. Jesus is calling us, as the new people of God, to walk differently. Jesus is inviting them to begin to see that What's required is not a behavioral change from the outside in, but it's a heart change. It's a renovation from the inside out. Now, to help them get at this, to help them understand it, Jesus uses hyperbole. He uses intentional language that is intentionally exaggerated, even to the point of absurdity, in order to make the point that this is really important. My children will live differently. And so verse 25, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So he's just talked about murder, no, it's about your heart, then he comes here to the... So, think about this for a minute. He's teaching the disciples, Matthew 5, 1, that's who's gathered around him. Um, Where are the majority of his disciples from? Has anyone kind of ever picked up on that... More than half of them are from one region in, in, in Israel. Galilee, Sea of Galilee. At least four of them are fishermen. So they're from the Sea of Galilee. Where are the sacrifices offered in ancient Israel? What city? Jerusalem, Jerusalem that's right. Anyone remember how, uh, how much time it would take to go from Galilee to Jerusalem? What kind of journey is that? A couple of days, yeah. It's, a, it's typically a couple of days if you're going by foot or going by donkey. Sea train's not working, so we've got to, you know... Um, So, is Jesus really telling his disciples here that having made a two-day journey from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem to worship, um, having either brought uh, a lamb or a dove with you uh, or bought one in the city, when you got there, uh, you get to the altar, you've gone up the steps, you've gone into the temple, you've come to the priest, it's like, oh, someone's angry with me. Uh, Someone has something against me. They've taken offense against me. So, I'm to leave my sacrifice there. Uh, I'm to go two days' journey back to the Sea of Galilee. I'm to convince them not to be angry with me anymore. You want to see a problem with that? Can you convince someone of anything? Well, maybe. But can you? Do you have responsibility for someone to forgive you or not be offended against you? you? Here's the point. Some of us have done time in institutions because we didn't get this one figured out. We've we've, we've tried to make someone else do something or tried to convince them where we've lived under their decisions. I can't change anyone. All I can do, all I can do is take responsibility for the way I think. For me to live right before God and pray for them that they would think right before God too. Jesus is describing an absurdity here. They'd come back two days more journey to the temple and then offer their sacrifice. Jesus is using hyperbole here in order to make a point. He's going to use it again. In order to make the point, this is really important. Like you may not have stuck a knife in the back of your brother and murdered him, but your words have been cutting. Or maybe you didn't speak what was in your heart, but in your heart was death. If only I could, nobody would notice. And Jesus is saying that the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees have missed the heart of this. They have not understood this. They thought it was about appearances. They thought it's about the surface, And that is important. What you do is important, but what you think is equally important. What's going on inside matters vitally. We begin to understand that Jesus is, is, is serious, about his children living differently. Um, We're going to have to think about Scripture as that which he is the the filling up of. Therefore, we need to be those who love it, who revere it. He does. But we need to think about the heart of the law and the prophets. Um, Not just the surface, but the deep We become peacemakers. We become those who are restoring relationship, uh, who are working with those around us in order to live together in, in, in harmony. These become characteristic of those who are disciples, those who've left the fishing boats and they've started following Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus continues, "...settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court." One translation says, be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you're on the way. Um, Jesus isn't surprised that his followers might find themselves in conflict. Um, they might find themselves in a situation where they would go to court. But he's saying, do what you can to be a peacemaker, to, to live at peace with others. It might, it might even cost you. You know what? You Maybe you're in the right. Uh, but, but Jesus says... Do this while you're on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, will not get out until you've paid the, the very last penny. Okay, so he's saying, look, because you're right or wrong it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be vindicated. So do whatever you can to make peace, to make it right, uh, while you're on the way. Be peacemaker. This is these is are characteristics of his followers that he's looking to. We're going to love scripture. We're going to love peacemaking. We're going to love. Purity of heart. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go through hell. Go into hell. So I've asked a couple of elders to come up, and uh, they're going to cut off my right hand. They're going to pluck out my right eye. I asked Pastor Tim to come with them because he's a lefty. I already had to cut off their right hands and pluck out their right eyes. I thought it might be a little more accuracy if a lefty had their hand on the axe while they chop off my right hand. Okay, so I see from your smiles you're seeing the absurdity of this, right? Jesus is not calling for the maiming. Of any of us, he's calling. He's using hyperbole. He's using exaggerated language to get at the fact this is important. Like, why are we messing around with things that are supposed to be characteristic traits of my followers? Those who 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 are living out of Scripture, learning to love me. Those who are representing me, bringing peace into the world. Those who are those who love a purity of heart, who long that we would walk rightly before God. This passage makes reference of men lusting after women, but it's not gender. It's not gender exclusive here. Jesus is speaking into a patriarchal society, a male-dominated society. But but his words about purity of heart, his words about lust are, 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 are for both genders. This is about guarding the, the appetites of our hearts, guarding our eyes, that we would. We would look at things that are going to build us up rather than things that are going to destroy us. So when you view pornography, I mean, it's all around us, it's everywhere in our society. Um, the, the Holy Spirit is going to in, inspire a, some guilt and some shame attached to the lust that is, it is about this stuff. And then you have a choice to make. Uh, if, you, if you choose to stuff it, hide it, to hope that maybe no one notices. I'm going to try harder, not going to go there again. It's going to rot, and it's going to begin to stink up your life. And rather, the biblical practice is to, to confess it to God as sin, and then to repent and walk in new ways. Uh, maybe it means putting uh, some controls on your internet access. Um, I always encourage couples, know what one another's passwords for your devices are. Just level of accountability. Um, you know, let's just be honest uh, and, and try to help one another walk in purity. Guard your children. Um, we've had practices where we said, look, um, no devices in private spaces. Um, they need to be in a public space. The computer's going to be in a public place where, you know, somebody can check in on what's going on on the screen. Um, we're just attempting to... Uh, t- to Help one another, do what is right, to walk in purity of heart. Seven commands, seven blessings. My children will walk in these ways, they will live in these ways. Uh, The command do not murder, Uh, rather, be a peacemaker. Uh, Do not even be angry with someone, be a peacemaker. The command, don't commit adultery or lust after someone else, is this encouragement to love purity of heart. And then the same is true concerning Jesus' words about divorce. This is the final one we'll look at this morning, but it kind of packages together with these others. Verse 31 it has been said. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, Jesus is speaking into a male-dominated society here. He's addressing those with power. And he was addressing the fact that that power was regularly being abused in that culture. Now, it's it's really tough for us to kind of even conceptualize what was going on in that culture because almost every marriage was an arranged marriage. You know, the the modern narrative, a boy meets girl falls in love, um, they get married and have babies together, um, that was almost unheard of in that culture. That wasn't how marriage worked. Um, now, it, it did happen that way sometimes. There are were, there were some wonderful stories from history of, you know, mom and dad made great choices for kids, and maybe they even got some say in it. Hey, dad, how about, how about her? Um, and, and it resulted in them falling in love with one another and building a beautiful marriage together that, that was the kind of thing that God envisioned. And sometimes it didn't go that way. Sometimes it didn't go that way. And Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, um, made some allowance for that. And said, said, sometimes this isn't going to work. Um, Now, the loophole finders loved the fact that that thing had a loophole in it the size you could drive a bus through. Uh, If a man finds something um, he doesn't like, effectively, about her, he may divorce her, give her a certificate of divorce. Some of the Jewish rabbis said, well, what Moses was talking about, they gave a very narrow interpretation of that. What Moses was talking about was she wasn't a virgin. She would slept with someone else, um, and uh, that would be grounds for divorce. Other rabbis took a much broader thing, and they said, well, um, uh, something, uh, he's talking about like she can't cook. There are, you know, any kind of range of things like, like almost everything was a grounds for divorce um, in some of their interpretations. Um, Some of uh, some of them gave the women an opportunity to be able to file for divorce. Most of them did not. um, The the society in which they lived. Jesus is saying, you've all missed the point. Uh, My my design was that husband and wife would reflect. My love for my people. And Paul talks about this, Ephesians chapter 5, that that others might look on us who are married and say there's something about that union that's beautiful, that that reminds me of Christ's love for his church in the husband and her responsiveness, the church's responsiveness to our groom, the one who loves us sacrificially, self-sacrificingly, and, 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 and so Jesus is saying, look, my followers are going to live differently. There's going to be a different kind of character present in them. There are going to be those who love Scripture, those who, who, are, who love peacemaking, those who love a purity of heart, those who love fidelity and faithfulness. These are going to be the characteristic kinds of things about the followers of Jesus. Not going to take the easy way out, even when it's difficult. But notice there's also kind of the corollary here. He's not saying it's not enough just not to put a knife in someone's back. You, you, need, to, you, need, to, you need to work to build wholesome relationships. Journey back. Leave your gift at the altar. Journey back. Make it right. It's, it's not enough just to not commit adultery in a physical sense, but how you think about the opposite sex matters. So so guard your mind, guard your heart in these things. It's not enough just to not get divorced. It's not enough just to grin and bear it in in a barely tolerable existence. He would call us to invest in our marriages because this is a picture of, of Christ and his church. We, when was the last time that you you read a book on marriage together uh, in, in as husband and wife or, or or maybe went to a marriage conference uh, or maybe took maybe took your anniversary and, and celebrated it by just the two of you getting away uh cultivating uh romance um growing your friendship uh together um, there's a great opportunity coming up in November uh, Friday November 23rd just at our sister church, First Alliance Church in Calgary. Focus on the Family is hosting one-night marriage enrichment, enrichment conference. Uh, 80 bucks. If, finances is a pro, if finance is a problem, talk to Pastor Craig or myself. We'll fix that for you. Um, but, but maybe this is a good opportunity for you to invest constructively, proactively in your marriage. Focus on the Family Canada, focusonthefamily.ca, if you want to look it up, um, also offers a marriage in crisis uh, curriculum. Um, uh, They call it uh, Hope Restored, and uh, they they have multiple stories of marriages that were utterly, like they were done, like no one had expected they would ever survive. Um, But they said, said, apparently God thinks this stuff is important, so what the heck? one last-ditch effort, why not? It's only a weekend. And God has done some extraordinary miracles in people's lives and their marriages in, in such situations. Hope restored. I would commend that to you. We as a church family have our Marriage Mentor Program. Two couples that have stable, healthy relationships, who love Jesus, and they would be glad to journey with you as another couple. Christian friends through the Marriage Mentoring Curriculum. And just invite you as fellow followers of Jesus to grow additional strength and stability in your marriage. Jesus has given us one another. Don't do this alone. If your marriage is in crisis, don't do it alone. Get the help that you need to, to begin the journey toward health. If you're, if you're struggling with anger, uh, don't, don't try to do this on your own. Get some help Allow the church, the body of Christ, to journey with you in these practical ways. If you're struggling with adultery or pornography or something like that, don't go it alone. Uh, there are help resources unlike the church has ever had in her history to help you walk in, in increasingly godly ways. And Jesus says this stuff's important. This stuff is important. I want you to, to live in my blessing and then live out of my blessing And it's going to change you. You're going to become increasingly more like me on this journey. Someone's kind of summarized this segment of Scripture in the following way. They, they said, God loves me enough to accept me the way I am. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are them who mourn. He loves me enough to accept me the way I am. But God loves me too much to leave me that way. The commands and invite the worship team to come and invite you to respond. Uh, Why don't you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that some of the things that you teach are really difficult to understand. And as we put them together, we're grateful for Bible scholars who have helped us refine our thinking. And you, Lord Jesus, call us as your people to live differently. Would you teach us what it means to be children of the kingdom, living differently, as your kids, and calling others to join us in living under your reign and rule together. We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.